Hi, I'm Alice Marie. Welcome to the European Aquaponics Podcast. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've dug through the archives and found an interview that I did with Lynn Davis of Open Food Network. Bearing in mind that this interview was done, I think, in 2014 or 15, and that subsequently to our interview, Open Food Network did get the funding that they were looking for and have made great waves. If you want to find out more about Open Food Network, I recommend you go and check out their website, www.openfoodnetworkuk.org, after the episode, as Lynn is going to give you a lot of information about how they do things and where they're coming from. This is also an unusual episode because we actually get into a bit of food system geekery. At the time that I was interviewing Lynn, my research was on collaborative innovation in the food system and how small farming is collaborating with it within their local geographies to form these uh, ecosystems of food sort of chain operatives and making headway into their markets by doing that. That's my dog dreaming in the background. So I really am just looking forward to sharing this conversation of Lynn with you. We have a few laughs and we talk off on tangents and I'm hoping also that for some of you it's just a way to see that all of these really interesting people can be just so relatable. Um, So yeah, I think just a little bit of housekeeping first. Um, We do this podcast uh, for free for our network and the only way that we can afford to do that is if people keep making sure that they're buying their annual memberships to the European Aquaponics Association. That gives you all kinds of benefits, including deeper access to resources, jobs, opportunities, funding, all kinds of things. So you can join the European Aquaponics Association or find out more about what benefits there are to doing so at www.europeanaquaponicsassociation.org. And what would really help us is just if people like this podcast and give feedback on it on iTunes and that will help us get ahead. Right, so over to Lynn, I think. Thanks very much. I hope you really, really enjoy this wide-ranging and interesting conversation with Lynn Davis of Open Food Network UK. Uh, Okay, so Open Food Network um, is a B2B service. It's a service to support local food enterprise. So it's a web-based platform um, and it's designed to be useful for enterprise and local food enterprises that want to have an online component. So maybe a CSA where it's like people get a box but they like to make it more flexible and people can say what they want in their box in advance. Um, So you could put your CSA on there and allow people to shift what they want. A food hub type model like Stradco or Somerset Local Food Direct. So, um, yeah, where loads of different producers put their produce online um, and an order cycle that people can buy it. It can be for a local food producer who wants to start selling their produce and so they'll have an order, they can put an order cycle. It could do like a um, uh, food assembly type model, so a farm based around a farmer's market. People can do pre-ordering for a farmer's market and then come and pick it up at the market. So it sounds, yeah. it sounds really flexible, so it essentially gives lots of different channels for people to be connected with their local food. Yeah, and it allows communities to decide themselves what they would like their local 
what they would like their food project to look like. So if a community decides they want to do a local food enterprise, that there's not enough going on near them, they have a lot of control over the type of model that they'll use, which is inherent in the design and what separates it from some of the other platforms that are starting to emerge in the market. When was the organisation founded? And I guess it's also significant where in the case of... Uh, yeah, then. so it was founded three years ago in Australia um, and they've been uh, developing the software, running beta te- like and testing for a lot of that time. It launched in Australia in June last year. Um, we started... U- we started uh, developing it for UK, so in the UK, uh, Dean Varro's Food Hub, Stradco Food Hub, Tamar Valley, and Five Diet all came together to put to collectively develop and transfer the software over to uh, meet the needs of the food hubs that we had running in the UK, and we started doing that t- in 2014, mid 2014, um, and it's been quite a slow process, mostly because we realised that in order to provide the support we wanted to launch it on a wider scale, we need quite a large amount of funding to do that until we get up and running with lots of users. Um, So we're pre-launch still in the UK and hoping that we can launch in the next couple of months. Um, How has what Open Food Network does changed or evolved over its timeline? Okay, so... Um, when it started in Australia, it started to facilitate a buying group in Melbourne. Um, and this buying group was kind of, um, the design was to be quite a large wholesaler that fed, that sourced from lots of local producers in the region, because uh, distances are such a big thing in Australia. Um, that you need to work on quite big regions to source food. And then this also distribution hub would source then to buying groups around Melbourne. Um, so it was designed as a research project to try and fulfill this need and see if this model could work. Over time then, it's evolved to support a much wider range of food enterprises. So they realised that the types of buying groups um, actually, you know, it wasn't just one model. People wanted to do lots of different types of, like, B2C level, you know. So lots of different ways of interacting with consumers in the community. Um, so, yeah, that um, then forced a lot of additional flexibility to be added into it. It then, uh, because the product that they were building was actually really quite advanced compared to other similar software models around the world it started to get a lot of interest so we picked it up in the UK we then had to in terms of organization the organizations had to evolve quite a lot it started off with Kirsten and Sorrenti just kind of doing it then they got a developer Rohan um, there so now there's like an international community where we have a team in the UK and we have a small development team in the UK that work with the team in Australia there's a team in Norway, there's a team in South Africa, there's a team in France. We have now realised we have to organise on a global level. Um, so because um, this kind of soft, like there are some things that make sense to do on a global level and open source software is actually to solve local food problems. There's, it makes a lot of sense to have a global commons for that. So yeah, we now organise on a global level. Once a month we have a global hangout to talk about 
how we how we organize how we can prioritize what needs to be done um so it's it's evolving and changing quite quickly in terms of how we organize um and definitely the software functionality just keeps being fed in it keeps being made more flexible we keep developing new functionality um as we get more users you've already kind of explained what the reason was for the changes um, while you were talking about them, which is mm. quite good. <laughs> um, and you did say that you differ from conventional... Um, well, not conventional, you, d- you differ from the other platforms that are emerging. Yeah. But there's also conventional food system platforms out there that do yeah. local food-to-consumer activities like Ocado. So what do you think makes you distinctive from those kind of platforms? So, um, I mean, because we're specifically a software platform, I think a lot of what we do is, a lot of what makes it different is a little bit lost, but certainly the ethos behind it is food sovereignty, agroecology. Um, so we work to support, and um, certainly our goal is to support smaller community type enterprises or social enterprises start, started by people within our community. So um, focusing on allowing people to shape their own food needs and then implement and models that kind of fit in with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, always in this stuff, I think that there's very little that you can do as a food project to create a USP that's different from what the supermarkets can offer. Like... Supermarkets will put the imagery of nice, happy farming all over the products. So, like, that imagery is there whether you are actually doing it or whether you're not. Um, supermarkets always, well, not always, but a lot of what they do is cheaper, a lot of what they do is more convenient. So, um, the big kind of, the big USP, the big unique thing about people working in the social movement side of changing our food system is that we are working for political change. We are, you know, it's a political act. We turn shopping into a political act where you're an activist. You're engaging in making the world a better place through this. Um, and that, it, interestingly, like, this is something that uh, in um, a conference that I went to in, where was it? Switzerland? Um, so food producers and researchers from across Europe came together and this was a common thread that people were talking about that actually in this scene, you know, when we're working for agroecology, food sovereignty, we are we're turning food into a political act. That's the main thing that we have above, above conventional. It's very interesting because I remember I read an article... In the Idler, mm-hmm. do you remember that they do like they had a phase where they were doing hardback books, and one was on mm-hmm. the the gardening as a political act and allotmenteering. Oh, oh, nice! It was mm-hmm. really nice, but it's always been in my mind that there's something not politics in terms of interacting with government, but politics mm. of daily life. Yeah, they're obviously connected things, but there's something more real in yeah. the politics of daily life end of the scale. Yeah, kind of more anarchist politics, but most people wouldn't like that as a phrase that they would subscribe to. Yeah, the types of, like, for example, the types of students that are helping with the uni roots project, they have 
ethical and value-based motivations for mm. their contribution, therefore it's inherently political. Yep. But they wouldn't recognise it, and if anything, they've shown that they... Like one was saying she used to do stuff with Friends of the Earth, but it was too activist. Oh, wow. That's so... Friends of the Earth is too activist. I know. <laughs> and she was like, it's just a bit like Greenpeace, it's too activist. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of being active or pursuing actions that are to improve things, it's like there's this disconnect between types of activism. And I think it's really nice that this, mm. this type of activism hasn't, in a way, been associated with the other because it makes it more accessible. Not that yeah. one is bad. But yeah, I actually think that like a lot of people do want to be an activist, but they won't they won't recognize that or use those words. But to, to be able to act in a way that doesn't create much impact on your life, but makes the world a place you want to see a better place, like essentially that's being an activist. Um, and I think most people want to make their world a better place in some way, whatever they define that is. Who knows? It's so still weird, ways. isn't it? It's like. Feminism yeah. can be like frowned upon, can be super or alienating, or can be inclusive if you're in the right group of people. Funny. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I diverged, but it seemed interesting. Um, what's special about your service? Kind of have explained that as well, but if there's any, well, enabling that type of activism might be something that's unique. Yeah, I think, um, so if we're successful in getting a part of funding that we really, really, really love, um, then uh, one of the ways that we're going to roll out is that we'll also offer like um, facilitated sessions to groups who, who kind of go, we want to do, we want to do a local food project, mm. don't know what, don't know how it might look, um, so We'll go and work with the, these groups. Nick Weir's got a lot of experience doing this. And help groups to identify what assets, what risks, you know, what's going on in their area, um, which would shape what how a food system might look if they created one for themselves, what people actually, you know, what would be a good addition to the local food system. So in this regard, we're really working to empower communities. The software model does it inherently. Um, and so then we're going to point, bring in like the human element and try and support that process. So, yeah, it's actually about empowering people to solve their own shit. <laughs> That's great. Um, what ideas and values within you, potentially you, the organisation, need to be the case for the work to happen? What ideas and values within us need to be the case for the work to happen? You mean... Like, what's, what are the kind of values of the organisation, but also the people that work for the organisation that, okay, yeah. that they have to have to be able to work for the organisation? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think everyone who works within the Open Food Network believes... That's cool. Right, we're pushing. Hello. Right, I'll be right down, thank you. It is the postman. Great. Yeah, I'll get it. Oh, thanks, Robin. All good. Cool. Yeah, so 
I, everyone who works for the organization, uh, to this point, a lot of work has been done voluntarily, and people do it because they believe that this is going to contribute to the world that they want to see. Um, so people believe that food sovereignty, agroecology is a better way of organizing our food system, that this kind of platform can support that. Particularly, I think, the social sides of these things, not just the actual act of not using chemicals in the land but how we socially organize around these concepts. Um, yeah, so I think fundamentally people just need to believe that our food system's broken and we need a new one. Um, and it turns out that a lot of people just get on board with projects because of that, because it looks, it looks better than what's going on. And if it's better than what's going on, let's get on board. I think that happens across the board. Um, so yeah, it's interesting the level of politics that people need Personally, like, yeah, I kind of think about this stuff a lot, so my answer's more the first part. <laughs> yeah. Um, what needs structurally to be going on for your organisation to be functioning as it is, by which I mean both internal and, like, in the wider environment, so it could be okay. politically, it could be the values that society's having, maybe yeah. that the market niches a certain way. Yeah, so... I won't actually say them all. <laughs> the, um, the... Structurally, in terms of the wider, wider society, this kind of increasing interest in local food is really, really beneficial. Increasing interest into, in sustainably produced and healthy food, all of these things kind of fit into it. Um, um, so I think on a political level um, that like how we structure our EU subsidies could really make a big difference to all of this stuff if we had the capacity to have put less money into pillar one per hectare payments and more money into pillar two changing our food system type payments then that has a huge capacity to it could have a huge capacity to make quite tangible change and you can see that through the leader program that like this little bit of Pillar 2 funding has actually created a load of really successful projects all across the country. Proportionally, what goes into something like LEADER compared to what goes into a feudal tax, rich like, landowners being paid just for the sake of having land, like it, it's completely backwards. So on a political level, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, structurally, in the organisation, it's interesting, like, in this funding bid that we've applied for, we've had to completely rework our structure. We were, like, horizontal CIC, and they wanted us to create a hierarchical organisation, um, which has been quite an interesting process, and we've kind of just gone along with it for the sake of getting further through this funding process. So that's, I guess it's a bit of a learning curve. Like, Do you have a secretary now? We've, I mean... <laughs> But the structure was like we need a non-exec board of directors, like trustees kind of thing, and then a hierarchical um, executives with a chief exec, and then you know communications exec and a uh, or head of communications, head of like de testing and development, head of um, finance. You know we've got this whole like hierarchical structure that people work underneath that. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's been a. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Actually, I maybe think, you just missed out the sentence where it's like this is dynamic and flowing, but just, just delete that. 
<laughs> These worlds are dynamic and flowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is more how we're going to operate, definitely. But it's really hard. It's a hard balancing act. I'm intrigued that Esme Fairburn still demands that because these new organisational forms have been brought in to support organisations that were functioning in a flatter way or different, mm. wiry way rather than hierarchical. And lots of them yeah. do. Oh, Esme, so old school. Yeah, I think they've got quite an elderly board of trustees that do kind of more the retired or approaching retirement age. Yeah. So they have a way of like understanding the way the world works and they've not you know they don't ask for it if you're if you're going for small amounts of money but if you're going for big amounts of money i think it's more of a criteria so we can just flatten out again it's fine can you point to times in the organization's past when you've faced barriers um yep the whole time we've existed we've been trying to access funding we've done a huge i mean considering that so the way this has worked is that to get this platform to the UK, um, I think in total we had about maybe £15,000 coming, for a few grand coming from Tamar, um, some coming from Stradco and some coming from Five Diet. Um, and I've put in loads of volunteer time and lots of people have put in loads of volunteer time. But like to get to the point that we have this like incredible software platform and it, it's happened for 50 grand. It's like mind blowing. But that's mostly because the Australians have had more luck getting funded than we have. It's Do they share a, a lot into it? Is the platform always kind of communicated across the global network? Yeah, I mean, it's open source. Um, and so we have our own instance where we, we contribute to the open source repository. Um, and then we have our own instance in the UK that we deploy you know, the versions of this open source onto ours. They have their setup in Australia, but it all feeds into this code base. So it's kind of amazing that if suddenly there's lots of funding in the UK, it would improve the network for everybody. Yeah, totally. Likewise, if the Americans get funding, it will improve it for everybody. So it's really nice. It makes a lot of sense for something like this to have a global commons, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's a common property of everyone in the world who's trying to solve local food problems it actually fits like not just global north countries but global middle and increasingly global south countries of like better and better access to the internet i'm getting a thinking growing inside me that isn't clear yet but it's about some of the initial research i did which was on the food crisis 2007-8 mm -hmm. where the essentially the the market, the stock exchange, they were playing with food as if it was everywhere in the same way mm -hmm. and ignoring the geographic um, disparity, yet it was promoted by the geographic disparity because lack meant money mm. and abundance meant less money. Yep. So they were playing a kind of financial game whilst forgetting the actual repercussions but maybe a system like this can be better integrated with stock market or not like mm. shown as why you shouldn't play with stock market on certain things 
Yeah. Like, sure, play stock market with televisions, but don't think that the grain market is the same as the television market. That yeah. Kind of this is something I think about quite, like, since Dan, Dan went and started working as a commodity trader, we have lots of conversations about about commodities markets. And, like, it does, so, you know, it does work really well for renewable energy, where you need to source it over quite a large area, you need quite a lot of investment to create the, um, the required tech to you know, implement these systems, I'm st- I still can't see how it can possibly work well for agroecological farming, like uh, when you actually get more yield, have better farming by having smaller farms that are bespoke, that need to change from place to place because they need to adapt from climate to climate, like, yeah. And have the stakeholders of the long-term viability as above shareholders? Yeah, and the land. Yeah. Above, above. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, fertility of soil mm. as a long-term stakeholder and I mean, future generations' capacity to eat. Yeah. Yeah, and like, in simplistic terms, the capitalist model extracts value from either like surplus value created from people's time, or extracting value from the resources of the earth at a faster rate that it can replenish them. So, like, quite fundamentally, if you're extracting wealth, then at least one of those things has to be oppressed. Um, and in the case of agriculture, it, it, it's always, I mean, it's always been both to the extreme. So I don't know how you can extract wealth from agriculture. Yeah, I guess... Furthering my thinking is that you will have a global system where you can see flows and transactions Mm. and that it might be interesting to start to think about how that maps across what we've been doing in finance before and whether there's like a nonsensical economics that can be promoted in a similar way but not with money as the exchange. Maybe for the same reason that people work for next to nothing on things they care about, people um, have, like, value is not money. Can you trade Mm. it? When you have a platform Mm. that is big enough to show trades, can you start to think about trading on value and futures in a value sense rather than a monetary sense. That's kind of what blockchain want to do, don't they? I haven't heard of them. It just it literally just popped out of my brain because I was thinking about the previous researches. Mm. I mean, I I don't know whether it it feels like it tries to turn values into commodities. Okay. Um, but lots there's a huge international community trying to trying to develop this concept that are a lot smarter than me, so I should look into it more. But in my in my kind of thoughts on it, it seems like it would ter- like like look at the mess that happened when we decided that we'd internalize the externality of um, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon dioxide, and we put carbon trading around the world, and actually carbon emissions have gone up, and like global south communities are getting exploited so the global north communities can continue to admit like i in terms of economic models it seems that providing rewards like the feed-in tariff have much higher impact than trying to put caps and punishments on things which people then just try and find loopholes around
how that fits into blockchain or not. Interesting. Sorry, I took us off on a massive tangent and I'm taking up your time. It's, it's all very interesting, actually. <laughs> like, we always have a geek out whenever we get together. Know, it's oh, great. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, other barriers you talked about funding in general. Funding, yeah. It's, and I guess finding, because Catch 22, like, so because the software that we're working on is. A complex piece of code it takes quite a while for people to get into it it's in Ruby on Rails which is an incredible programming language but not as widely known as something like JavaScript um, so finding developers finding technical team has been a challenge um, and training ourselves up when we're on the other side of the world from the technical team that developed the software in the first place has been a challenge um, and it's going to continue to be a challenge. Even when we've got funding, we're going to have to find people who are actually like not shit. If we're going to pay them our hard-earned cash, that's going to be a hard process in itself. Especially as when people work away from the office on development, you don't really know what they're doing. Mm, yeah. It's hard to manage. Yeah, I don't really think it's going to work if we just charge people, a, I mean, pay people a day rate. We kind of need to pay people chunk of money for a task get it done money yeah <laughs> um yeah other barriers so you're talking about skill like even the... yeah um i can't even find the question anymore structurally uh, okay barriers so everything's barrier up to this date <laughs> yeah. we haven't rolled out yet it's like just overcoming barrier after barrier um having a distributed team is a big barrier. If we had a nice office that we were all in the same place in, life would be very easy, but that's not what we have. Um, Where does everyone live? Are they local? Paul's in London, as is Steve. I'm in Bristol, Nick's in Stroud, Mags is in Scotland, Sarah's in Tamar Valley somewhere. Um, who else is there? There's a few people around Stroud who come and go. Um, so it and would then be the Australian like, team. literally not possible for you guys to share an office anyway. No, I think if we were to do it, we'd get an office in London because that's where the developers are. Mm. There are many more developers in London. Um, what are the kind of barriers that you're finding through distributed working? Um, we, I guess we've always worked this way, so it's not so bad, but it's like getting answers to questions if you just want to like run ideas by someone always takes longer and real challenges that the Australian team work Wednesday to Friday in Australia so we have like two evenings two mornings that we can kind of contact in a week so if you miss that boat or you aren't able to work you know to do work here on the days that overlap then you wait a whole week for a response from the Australians, so that's slowed things down quite a lot. Um, so that's definitely a challenge, um, and I guess we've just had to kind of adjust our, our time scales accordingly. You know, it's a really hard question to ask given the imminence of this funding, but what opportunities do you see for the organisation in the near future? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... If things go well, then um, it's, yeah, we basically, we're really at the point of being able to roll out now. We've kind of got a nice deployment um, set up 
nice kind of testing setup so we can we can um, have confidence in releasing new versions so we don't have any downtime so we're like really ready to start bringing people on which is great if we don't get this funding pot then it's just gonna happen slower it's gonna be a bit of a, a long haul to financial viability there's other funding so I guess it'll be a process of more fundraising and getting and it done got, in parallel. We've got a budget to pay a fundraiser as well. If we don't get this, then we've got um, £900 to pay a fundraiser. Hopefully, a professional fundraiser in nine, for £900 could get a chunk of money in. I hope so. We'll see. We would hope so. It's great. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Where do you kind of see it going then, for the UK? What I mean globally as well, but do you, how would what would it look like in the future? Um, so to start with, we will be able to provide the support to the twenty odd organisations that have got in touch and said we want to use the Open Food Network. When can we start using it? And we've been saying we don't have any capacity to support you right now, so not yet. Um, so that will be the first step and that will be really exciting. Um, after um, we're going to um, get the next set of functionality implemented which will be about re recurring orders and that's going to open up massive part of the local food scene um, who depend on having orders coming in every week. So um, that, yeah. We're going, we've got like a, a plan to um, ensure that we've got an even spread of usage and demographics across the country. Um, so we'll kind of start mapping that out and then putting directed marketing of it into different areas via the grassroots and activist scenes, I think, via like people who are into organising. Um, yeah, we need a strategy on how we can because it's, it's such a white middle-class movement, the food sovereignty movement, unfortunately. So um, also how we can target different communities in the areas that we want to work in, if you have any ideas about that. Does that reflect on that? It actually requires people to be not strictly educated, but informed. To have an awareness and to... Also, I mean, it's a privilege to have enough, to have the capacity to think of, you know, a few steps ahead to kind of not just be thinking about how I get ahead, but what does that look like in the context of a broader world getting ahead? Like, it's so, yeah, it goes hand in hand, but if we can play a role in, in addressing some of these things, that would be phenomenal. It's really noted that it is such a white movement, <laughs> so interesting i mean overall it, it's it's not so far-fetched when you think about our history in that we're now 12 13 percent even 14 percent in some areas ethnic minority mm -hmm. by geography by demographic yet those communities have arisen very quickly mm. so no black babies aren't getting to university mm. as quickly as other parts of society. Maybe there's a way to be kind of 
supportive of both things. It's a weird one. Like for the Uni Roots project, we've mm. got one blogger who's a bodybuilder, mm. and it's we're trying to find more people like that. Okay. Because they appeal to a completely different demographic. Yeah. And he is educated, and you know, he's sort of his rationale for blogging for us is nutrition for fitness. Yeah. And he comes from a bit of a paleo stance, but he's not. Um, yeah, and a lot of the bodybuilding community is coming, not a lot, but a part of the bodybuilding community starts to look at paleo-type diets for basically being more muscle-dense mm. <laughs> and fitter and have more stamina in the same way that those same kind of people might be looking at drinking Soylent because mm. it's a, nutri- a rapid, efficient delivery of nutrition for the things that they want to do. So they're an yeah. interesting bunch but they're not all white middle-class people anymore. Great. So are there other communities that have overlaps yeah. that you can tap into? Um, yeah, it's that's, that's a good way to look at it. It's a difficult one, though. No more protein shakes. <laughs> okay. Um, what were the great opportunities of the past that have already happened that were exciting? Um... So, when... They didn't have to be exciting, actually. They could have been, like, fairly drab, but make a difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, getting, getting bits of funding and having the initial, like, conversations where the groups of food hubs realised that we needed this to happen, visit from Kirsten Serenity um, over to the UK um, to kind of build these bridges and identify, like, link-ups. That was cool. Um... Then definitely the times we've met face to face have always been great opportunities. Like it's really created a surge in uh, motivation, enthusiasm. Um, I went to Australia, so it's definitely like a lot of stuff's been about like face to face link ups for this project. Um, have made a huge difference. It's quite quite striking. Um, I notice that in all of my distributed like geographically distributed projects when you meet face to face it's quite huge what comes out of it how do you find people they find us generally um, we have put in so we have done call outs through um, uh, the food hubs that are involved looking for volunteers and also through Ruby and Rails networks in London done some call-outs. Um, which other organisations do you consider to be important partners or do you work closely with in your network? And if you don't mind repeating the kind of founding collaboration yeah. as well, that would sure. be helpful. So, uh, the founding collaboration was between Five Diet, Tama Valley Food Hubs, Stradco and Dean Forest Food Hub. Um, so, these, yeah, definitely partners with the international open food network like network um, uh, key particularly the Australian relationship given that they have all the knowledge and all the awesome um, then branching out from there we're definitely like forming relationships with other local food organisations who want to 
um, come on board with the Open Food Network, so Kent Farmers Market Association, Manchester Veg People, different kind of established groups. Um, upon that, I'd say a lot of the movement stuff in the UK, so stronger links with the Land Workers Alliance, focusing on the food sovereignty movement, um, working with, um, yeah, yeah, that kind of food scene is quite is definitely really important and we need to put more work into partners that are going to help us diversify um, the demographic that we work with. That is something that needs work. How has this evolved over time? <laughs> Stop reading my questions. They are, they are right there. Um, yeah, how has your network evolved? I guess as we've started to... As we kind of rolled out the, um, the first version of the platform for people to have a look at, people have found us, and it's been it's been really word of mouthy, all finding us serendipitously, because we haven't put any effort into that at all. Um, yeah. How do you work together with all of these partners? So, the international community is. Like we we have a bit of a structure of how we work together. There's, um, so, the UK team have development skypes once a month, no, once a fortnight, um, that someone from the Australian team listens in on. Then we have a weekly session where we're able to get have a Skype to Skype with um, the Australian dev team to train as developers. We have a monthly global Skype. And then other things pop up in between um, where we just need to get in touch with each other. Um, yeah, it's all distributed, but there's some specific kind of contact times that we keep scheduled in so that we can... Because communications is obviously key. And then we have all the online platforms that we use. So um, we have a community forum on a platform called Discourse, which is where... It's got all the how-tos, it's got all the um, development upcoming stuff, it's where we talk about the specification of new development things, it's where we talk about testing and bugs that are found, it's where we talk about um, how we organise, how you do deployments, um, how to use it, anyone who's got questions about using it. Um, so it's just this huge kind of sprawling but structured and organised web. Um, then we have the GitHub um, where our kind of more specific development issues are put on bugs and um, enhancements um, and there's we communicate on that there's a Trello board for project planning which is not so not so like um, strictly used it's kind of a bit more people use it to brain dump um, and then we use Slack as a communication tool to have basically like chat windows where we can chat in groups so you can just ask dev questions quite freely without sending an email. It doesn't clog up the inbox. It's just like, have a conversation. So definitely make a lot of use of our tech tools. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny because when I did my thesis, most of those didn't exist. GitHub existed and mm. Skype existed and the others didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to notice the trends in... Because all of these tools talk to each other as well. So like the trend in kind of making useful software tools is to do one thing do it really well 
and make it talk to everything else. Yeah, I've um, started to talk about like texture did food. Okay. And that's what I see a lot of this stuff being. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. It's just occurred to me that. So uh, texture did food. What does that look like? What it just mean? means that <clears throat> a lot of food production is now undertaken with technology that it wasn't before. Yeah. And that the rise of the internet has created a new aspect of farming, which is, or of agri-food system in general, which is these interfaces and platforms and tools and yeah. modes of communication. And it's like, sometimes when I think about the the food hubs, for example, I imagine like this virtual layer that sits on our real geography that brings everything either really close together or changes the infrastructure or the flows and patterns mm. and it's a tech it's a tech agri landscape and it's yeah. interesting but I don't yet I haven't yet fleshed it out mm. I guess I hope I can write something about it like maybe a challenge paper or something out of the back of the research because it mm-hmm. everyone that I speak to uses tech even if they don't make sales through like web tech I mean even the telephone but it's yeah. indispensable as the fallback for the non-tech. And they don't realise that the telephone is also tech. It's just yeah. older. And people yeah. are using their mobiles and they're phoning them on their mobiles because they don't want to be sat behind a desk because they need to be out doing what they're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, mobile tech. I had my first mobile phone in the 90s. So it's not old. Yeah, totally. So everyone that's like, no, we don't use technology... Actually, like, yeah, everyone that's a little technology. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like, technology is your, like, grain cleaner, or technology is your tractor, you know? All of these yeah. things are also technology. So maybe it's a new um, family of technology that comes through the internet. Then. Yeah, I mean, you can say you don't use internet tools, but people, everyone uses email, everyone. Yeah. So. Well, all of these were using internet internally, even if they weren't using it as the like sales yeah. medium. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Another tangent, but maybe it's good because Open Food Network is a unabashedly tech kind of. It's yeah. A, it's a web-based platform. That's that's uh, all it is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We need the internet to work it all. Yeah. What needs? Oh, yeah, future partnerships and collaborations, and that's, like, people you'd like to work with, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it would be really good to to work with more organisations that are really firmly embedded in their communities. So to try and, like, to try and, yeah, facilitate some way of food reaching further into communities. I don't know. Um, also it would be quite nice to have better relationships or at least acknowledgement if, if we if we do grow then with organisations like DEFRA um, that have the capacity to really like implement or support so yeah part of it would be looking upwards but I think more importantly looking downwards to to different community organisations that we could form relationships with. And what needs structurally to be going on for those types of relationships to happen? 
Um, so, grassroots community, I just realised I called it upwards and downwards, I'm really not into that way of thinking. Jargon chick. Well, <laughs> not yeah, jargon, it's just more like dualism. hierarchies and <laughs> inherent in my soul, horrible. Um, <laughs> um, so, grassroots community organising takes a lot of time um, and it takes, it takes quite a lot of capacity, so we need to focus on capacity building as we try and build those relationships. Um, so that's quite huge. Uh, and then structurally looking at more uh, lobbying or political engagement type strategy. Um, we, yeah, I think structurally we need to grow a lot before we have any voice at all, obviously. Um, and the growing body of evidence about why these types of food systems are kind of better or more valid and then we need to overcome the supermarket um, lobbying monopoly which probably we won't do so structurally looking to that looking to the political side of things is probably going to be less fruitful Um, suppliers don't think I need to worry about for now. Um, clients, the same. You have this kind of different model where you're not talking about the customers as your clients, but as the intermediary organisations. Yeah. Although so, you do have individuals accessing the platform and searching for products as well. Yeah, so consumers use the platform, but, um, but they're kind of consumers of the businesses, food enterprises that we kind of work with. So, um, I mean, the people who are going to actually pay the fees of the software are the food producers and food distributors. How do you connect these, type, or how will you connect these organisations with your products and services? Uh, great question. So to start with, we'll go through the organisations and networks that we're already linked with, like the Landworkers Alliance and Food Sovereignty Movement um, and existing food hubs that we've already got in touch. Um, and yeah, then we need to strategize the fuck out of that. <laughs> and then same, like what structurally needs to happen for those relationships to happen, so for you to be able to connect new clients with your organisation. Mm. Yeah, this is really good because this you, is what we need to think about. Yeah, you've already described that you need to be capable of looking after the service at the back end to make sure it's functional and that you yeah. need money to do that. So that's like one example of the parts of the story, I guess. Sure. So in order to, I mean, by having a really good product or really be, by offering a really good service, then we um, we hope that part of that will kind of help the word to get out. That will be in part how, how at least over the first year. Um, so, yeah, funds to provide a super reliable service and to develop some of the functionality that we know organisations need. What other benefits do you think the organisation brings to the local area community.
um, hopefully this will manifest, but it has the capacity to um, support local food enterprise to grow, so help farmers access direct markets and then grow as enterprises themselves, the capacity to bring communities together um, around, around local food projects. I just love post. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Even when it's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Capacity to um, bring a global community together around food, around um, providing this platform as well. Mm. You said about lobbying. Is that something that Open Food Network will be getting involved in? I'd say more like joining in with the other things happening. So, yeah, like the Landworkers Alliance does a lot of that kind of thing, so we can help to spread the word about that. Um, the, there's a people's food policy currently being developed by partnerships through the food sovereignty movement. That would be the kind of thing that we could find useful. How does geography affect what you're doing? Um... In what way? Well, it's a weirder question for you because you're an international project, mm. yet food is produced in geographically specific areas. Yeah. And I guess the way you've arranged the network of the organisation to work with local yeah. is quite interesting compared it's, to the other organisations. It's definitely like inherent in the structure of the, the software platform that like food is meant to be produced locally and distributed and consumed as locally as possible but with the knowledge that actually like, that would mean a huge change of our diets and people aren't going to do that just yet and this is really interesting I think when you start to talk about minority communities in the UK like if you tell a Somali lady that she can't eat kava she's not going to come on board with your local food scheme um, so how do we improve these relationships or these kind of, yeah, the relationships to bring this kind of food into the country as well? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think, like, definitely the main focus is on this kind of geographically based food, but the social side of it opens this question up. It's bizarre. Interesting. And I asked, what are the spaces and places of your organisations operations so we ourselves are like computers in random places across the world but the kind of organizations that work with us um have what is for you it's an impeller impeller for a pump <laughs> whoa that's exciting um yeah the kind of organizations we work with have markets <laughs> um, they have like home deliveries they have pickups from schools and pickups from community centres and um, farm gate pickup from farms and like local shops all kinds of different like interfaces that people work through to access it and then a bit the last bits on like values sustainability, ethics, and you've mentioned some of those already. 
like you've talked about kind of <clears throat> it's almost a, a slightly subversive organization in that it doesn't follow a traditional capitalist meaning maybe in its structure maybe that's just you though no it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely other people in the organization but yeah like kind of going more and more down that route just because we have to we'll see um i guess when people pay for things with money it's very hard to escape yeah and like that's it's fair you know we need producers need money as much as they'd like to just trade everything for stuff like money is needed along the line in different places to access things um that's interesting so there's a kind of itchiness about that i think i see it everywhere actually that people don't want to do the business as usual but they have to interact with that regime of how things get done mm. because it's still the dominant way yeah and it's quite it's convenient as well like when you try to i mean i've lived and worked on different projects that don't engage with money as varying levels of rule and basically that just means that things are really slow everything looks quite shoddy um, you don't gain you, you stay really niche so if you want to gain like some kind of critical um, yeah, critical mass if you want to gain in popularity you need to actually engage with money while having a rhetoric that you know maybe there's other ways to engage with our economics so how how is sustainability important to open food network so yeah i mean it's i think people do it because do the open food network because they understand that this kind of tool can help make food more sustainable in the current context like if we could just be trading our food without the use of computers and tech in between then that would be even more sustainable but if we're competing with the supermarket paradigm or an internationally traded food system then some of these tools can help um, help us to provide the convenience the kind of service that beat the monoliths you know or at least can help us come onto the same level <laughs> mm. step up the game a bit um, and in terms of what we do as a practice to be sustainable, I mean, like, yeah, I think the fact that we're a distributed team but we don't meet very often is in part because, like, it helps us to be more sustainable, you know, um, little things like that, that we try to, we try to have meetings over Skype. I'm playing devil's advocate because I had to think about this when I was doing computer-based collaborations in the past, like, what about all the servers and children mining cobalt and... Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I don't even know whether we've got like ethical service space, digital ocean, probably not, and then Amazon S3 is where our images are, so probably not. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, also the longevity of such a project, you know, these are the kind, of, I think about these things as well, like, is it so... Yeah, we're putting a we're putting a, a tech demand on the world. Are we getting a net gain from you know the activities that we do by putting that tech debt on the world? I don't know. Um, and then is this like this the weight of the tech debt on the world is not sustainable in the long term? Is it going to crunch at some point? In which case, 
is the Open Food Network completely irrelevant? Or, you know, how, how, when does this happen? What does it look like? Like, are we just kind of barking up the wrong tree here? Because actually it's such a short-lived blip in reality. Well, there may be there's a transitionary kind of rationale then that <clears throat> if you're a, a catastrophist or even a Promethean catastrophist, the way things are going, they will at some point hit a wall. And is it a good idea that people have already been reconnected with their local food system, even if the internet was used to do that, so that mm-hmm. that relationship is there? Because yeah. if we hit the wall with only supermarkets, the argument is that that isn't going to work. So. Yeah, definitely. This is like a conversation we've had with the Australians. To say like this is this is what we talk about. That if we can use software tools to help establish relationships that actually are real world and tangible, because it turns out for all of these little hubs. You do, you know, you might, people might trade over the internet, but people also meet each other. They come and pick up their boxes, they come and collect the orders, everyone has a chat, it's a really nice experience. People also communicate over email and have those, like, direct conversations. People do build relationships. So, yeah. Talking to you, it seems also that social justice has a similar level of importance as sustainability, Mm. if not potentially slightly more important than sustainability. I feel like a definite like my personal view on this is that sustainability is an impossible Do you want tea? Sure. <laughs> I was like time I'll, I'll make more tea while you see. <coughs> no, it's fine. Um that we can't we'll never achieve sustainability without social justice. Like it's one of social justice is one of the key things stopping a more sustainable world from coming about. And you can kind of see in the UK that we have this level of affluence and the country's getting more and more sustainable. It's more ecological in the way that we manage our landscape, but that's because we've outsourced it. Like, without... with, And then, like, yeah, the... So someone was telling me the other day about a conversation that happened at Tinker's Bubble around the fire where someone was saying, like, working-class class people just don't give a shit which is obviously ridiculously unfair and completely undermines the person who said that's, like, awareness of their own privilege. They have no awareness of it at all. Um, but, yeah, like, there is, there is kind of a common um, conception or theme or I haven't looked into this at all, but, if, like, um, that the higher level of education means you become more sustainable in your life. So, um, I wondered also, like, whether it was, um, I've been, I really into conspiracy theories, but not as an ascriber to them as a, well, yeah, like, I find some of them rational, but all of them entertaining. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So this is my, like, I will read any conspiracy theory stuff, and one of the things I was reading the other day was, like a hater of conspiracy lovers talking about what happens to your brain when you start to believe conspiracy theories. And there's quite a lot of psychological chat about how people that believe conspiracy theories is because they have an intellectual character that's like more susceptible and there's like psychoanalysis going on on this kind of thing. But to the middle classes that the 
current food system is bad ethically, socially, environmentally, is not considered a conspiracy theory. Mm. But what I do see in the working classes, in the example of the horse meat scandal in particular recently, is that there is a trust in at the agri-corporation that isn't reflected in the mm. people that go and buy other things. So they've become mistrustful of the quality, be it social, environmental, ecological, that is delivered by agri-corporations. The people who are buying the £2 lasagna, mm. the £1 lasagna, that were horrified when it had horse meat in it, yeah. It was because they believed that that wouldn't happen, that yeah, they were totally. trustworthy. That that the if, it could, trustworthy. if it was allowed to be sold as food, it must be fine. Like, it must be fine to be eaten. And, and it should be because we have a government. We have... And we've got a buttload of food legislation that really gets in the way of small-scale producers, and yet big corporations manage to circumnavigate it with shitty food. Yeah, so I, it just it's an interest of mine... So this idea that working class people don't care isn't the issue, it's that they implicitly trust. Mm. And that what's happened to people that have certain levels of education that they become mistrustful of Mm. the normal kind of food regime of the country. Yet it's not considered to be irrational. Maybe it is. I don't know. Like I'm really in the bubble, so I yeah I can't tell. But like other conspiracy theories, and I guess there's yeah, that con- really concurrence too that lots of people that are interested in, like I'd say probably most of your conspiracy theorists, the fundamentalists that we'd be like, ha, strange. They also probably ascribe to the idea that the agri mm. corporate system is not functioning. So there's lots of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in yeah, a sort of end of the spectrum in terms of how you live politically with your food beliefs, a lot of conspiracy theorists exist in those groups as well. Mm. People that think that, you know, the way that we do global economics is there's lots of war and that makes money, but that there's lots of people creating false flag attacks to make us do more wars so that we can make more money. Like, mm. that's like quite prevalent in the community that I've hung around with when it's communes or informally yeah there's something in that that's really interesting as well yeah definitely what a tangently blah that was like no but that was great that was really (coughs) good thing um and then finally how important are shared values on sustainability and social justice in terms of who you choose to work with Mm, that's going to be an interesting one as we move forward because so far, um, everyone who's kind of found us has come through the movements and therefore um, share our views on these things. But as we move forward, I suspect that we're going to more and more be interacting with different groups. And I find it, particularly when you work with older groups, um, you like, and so I can imagine in a lot of rural areas will get like, you know, the local transition group or something like that where it will be important, but you always have people within these groups like who have different views, you know, our views on sustainability and social justice have changed as a culture, have changed a lot over the past 50, 20 years, you know, over the past 10 years, they've changed hugely. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I find it, it is, it is a really fuzzy space how you engage with it, like, it must be really interesting, actually, because you've got people that are interested in eating organic. 
that are raging racists, you know? Yeah, so with someone I'm working with on Streetgate, and he is, like, he's pretty damn racist, but he's been working for, like, getting people into growing their own food and community gardening and, you know, the environmental benefits of that and the social justice of that as well, but he's hugely racist. And, like, you just, like, spot all these little things, which I guess for us in our kind of friendship circle, you know, they're inconsistencies, but that's only because of our bubble, you know? <laughs> Like, and it makes, it's good, I really enjoy it actually, to become aware of like the things I take for granted in my own bubble. Because then I have to stop taking them for granted and start to actually mm. talk it through a bit more. Well, thank you so much for listening everybody. I was, I just so enjoyed reviewing this conversation that I had with Lynn all that time ago. I've been speaking to Lynn about whether we can have another conversation where we catch up with what's happened to Open Food Network in the subsequent years and also the other work that Lynn's been doing in the food sector. If you have questions that you'd like to put to Lynn, it would be really great if you could share those via our Facebook group, inventively titled the European Aquaponics Association. And that's also a great place to have conversations with peers across Europe and beyond if you want to be doing sort of more interactive chat or have specific questions or want to share your progress with your projects. It's a really busy group, a lot of members now, and we're very excited that we're hosting such a thriving community. So I look forward to catching up with you all next time. And in the meanwhile, happy farming.